In David's final words, he points his hearers back to the law of Moses and to those men who exhibited true biblical leadership. This is the 54th sermon in the series, Kingdom, Dynasty, and Glory, an exposition on the second book of Samuel. We're all coming reading, coming once again from 2 Samuel in chapter 23, the first four verses, the first four verses, as we revisit these verses, 2 Samuel chapter 23, 1 through 4, beloved of the Lord, these are the last words of King David. By inspiration of God, the prophet writes, Now these be the last words of David. David, the son of Jesse, said, And the man who was raised up on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, and the sweet psalmist of Israel, said, The Spirit of the Lord spake by me, and his word was in my tongue. The God of Israel said, The rock of Israel spake to me. He that ruleth over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. And he shall be as the light of the morning, when the sun riseth even a morning without clouds, as the tender grass springing out of the earth by clear shining after rain. Paul writing, speaking of leadership, in Romans in chapter 13, once again revisiting Romans chapter 13, the first five verses. By the same spirit, the apostle writes, Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power, resisteth the ordinance of God, and they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. For he is the minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid, for he beareth not the sword in vain. For he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Wherefore, ye must needs be subject, not only for wrath, but also for conscience sake. Thus far as the reading of God's most holy, inerrant, and finally authoritative word, the, finally authoritative word, the grass withers, the flower thereof, it fades away. But God's word stands forever, and by that word is our direction plotted out for us this day. Now, in Romans chapter 13, Paul makes very clear the undeniable fact that civil rulers are the ordained ministers of God for the purpose of justice, for the good of the people of their realm, in the civil realm. As civil ministers, they are leaders of the people for the good of the people to put the good before the evil and to take the evil away so that people might live in peace. To be a civil minister for good is to be a minister that is just in all things, in everything that he deals with, both personally and policy-wise, since he, as a minister of God, represents God to the people in the civil realm. Those who rule over the people in behalf of the people and for the good of the people themselves and in behalf of God are to have an absolute standard of justice. They have to know what the definition of good is and what the definition of evil is. If their idea of justice is not according to scripture, if their idea of justice is not according to righteousness, then the power that they execute as civil leaders will always be unfair and partial, if not oppressive and downright tyrannical. The civil ruler's exercising of the sword clearly distinguishes this minister from the ecclesiastical minister who does not bear the sword in a physical fashion. And yet, and this is important, and yet, both the civil ruler 
and the ecclesiastic ruler have been given stewardship of a sword. The civil ruler has the physical sword to be used as a revenger of the evil within the social order, whereas the ecclesiastical ruler has been given the stewardship over the spiritual sword of the spirit to be used as a revenger of the evil in the spiritual realm of the church and well as the society. They are to be watchmen. They are to be watchdogs working alongside of the civil magistrates. So they are both rulers over the civil realm in a very real way. Both are to be regarded, therefore, as ministers under God, and both, and this is important, both the civil ruler and the ecclesiastical ruler have temporal authority. They both wield temporal authority within the realm. Just because the ecclesiastical minister uses the sword of the Spirit, that doesn't mean that his power is not felt in the lives of men and nations. The power of the church, historically, was to be a force to be reckoned with. The church was a force to be reckoned with, historically. Since if a man was actually excommunicated, he not only was barred from communion, which represented, in those days, his being barred from heaven itself, but he was also barred from his economic prosperity. His economic, social, and political life would be therefore destroyed. He would become an outcast. Ministers were to use the standard of God's law for all of their decisions as their true north, and they were to hold the civil magistrates accountable to do likewise by the word of God. And it is the word of God, therefore, for both the civil ruler and the ecclesiastical ruler that must act as the standard of justice. And this is what Paul is telling the church at Rome. Romans 13 is a declaration to both of these rulers, civil rulers as well as ecclesiastical rulers. In fact, you might even apply this to anyone who rules, even a father in their own homes. Now, both David and Jethro give us the components of a minister all of which are rooted in justice and righteousness. These components are the ethical particulars that a minister, both civil and ecclesiastic, are required, they must, in other words, have. They are required to have these particulars. This means that their leadership must be Godward for the express purpose of establishing the world according to God's perfect law. And since it is only the law of God that can bring about justice, equity, and peace, both the civil and the ecclesiastic magistrates must uphold that law. However, when a civil ruler violates, neglects, departs, or perverts their calling as ministers for the good, they, in effect, invalidate their office. They invalidate their legitimacy. Professor Dr. John Whitty Jr. comments, he says, Theodore Bayes argued that if rulers violate their terms of political covenant and become tyrants, God empowers the people to resist and to remove them from office. The power to remove tyrants, however, lies not directly with the people, but with their representatives, the lower magistrates, who are constitutionally called to organize and direct the people in an orderly resistance in all warfare and revolution if needed. Powerful words by our forefathers, by the men of faith, by the men of God. Powerful statements. 
Citing the argument of the Reformation, and in particular Theodore Beza, Witte continues. He says, Beza reconstructed some of Calvin's original teachings, which Beza had initially defended fiercely. Every political government, Beza now argued, is formed by a tacit or explicit covenant or contract sworn between the rulers and their subjects before God as third party and judge. In this covenant, God agrees to protect and bless the community in return for their proper obedience of the laws of God in nature, particularly as it sets forth in the Decalogue. The rulers agree to exercise God's political authority in the community and to honor these higher laws, the divine laws of God, and to protect the people's rights. The people, on the other hand, agree in this covenant to exercise God's political will for the community by electing and petitioning their rulers and by honoring and obeying them so long as they, and this is important, so long as they remain faithful to the political cabinet. If the people violate the terms of this political covenant and become criminals, Beza argued, God empowers rulers to prosecute and punish them and sentence him to death in extreme cases. He then repeats this. But if the rulers violate the terms of the political covenant, become tyrants, God empowers the people to resist and to remove them from office and sentence them to death in extreme cases. That's an incredible statement. That is just an incredible statement. This is how our forefathers thought about the wickedness of men who become tyrants. They needed to be removed from the face of the earth. Beza encouraged the doctrine of the lesser magistrate, believing that this would ensure an orderly transference of power when it was necessary to remove a tyrant. He did not want to see revolution with just people revolting. He wanted an orderly transference of power. You can see here how critical the office of the civil minister is for the well-being of the people. For Beza, the civil ruler, in addition to the ecclesiastical ruler, had a duty a God-given divine duty to lead the people in the paths of righteousness. They were there to protect the people Godward. Both officers were to comment on matters of both church and state. The civil rulers were to protect the church. The ecclesiastical rulers were to protect the welfare of the community by working alongside of the ministers of the civil realm. Both offices were to be involved in the civil affairs of church and state. The clergy was to ensure that the laws and policies of the civil magistrate harmonized with God's law in order to secure liberty for the people and the civil ruler was to secure the integrity of the church by protecting her. You see how they work together. Not to do so would result in chaos and the wrath of God upon both the people, the clergy, and the rulers. Now David and all of Israel experienced this when Saul was chosen by the Israeli leadership to rule the people as their civil minister. Now when Saul was being vetted, Samuel protested as it was his duty to do so as a ecclesiastical magistrate, as the prophet of God. But he was ignored by the elders of Israel to the shame of the entire nation. As the result was, as we know, the result was tyranny, Warfare and misery for the people of Israel. And in fact, Saul proceeded to destroy the church rather than to protect it by slaying the priests of Israel. 
Saul's evil leadership plunged the people into harm's way on every level, socially, economically, militarily, and spiritually, which directly affected each and every family of the nation. That is America today. And so it was Saul's perverted leadership which destroyed Israel. But it was also the people's desire for that kind of a leader that paved the way for that destruction. The people were now culpable. Remember what they wanted. They wanted a leader. They wanted a king to defend them like the other nations from the Philistines. They didn't want a leader that would lead them into the ways of righteousness. They didn't want a leader that would lead them into the ways of justice, equity, and peace. They wanted a leader that would fight out of fear, out of the fear that the Philistines would destroy them and defeat them and take them captive and enslave them. The people chose a leader that they thought would deliver them. But in reality, they had chosen a leader that would bring them into bondage and future misery. Fear, of course, is a powerful motivator. And wicked men know how to use it to manipulate the faithless cowards of a nation. That's what we have. Now we have, after COVID, now we have disease X. Now we have this. Now we have that. We have Get the nation to be afraid and you can control the entire nation. What Israel wanted was for Saul to perpetuate a continual warfare campaign against the Philistines. In their mind, that would ensure their safety. Make the people afraid and tell them everything will be okay because we'll help you, we'll defend you. And that would ensure their safety, bringing the nation to peace. The problem is that that would not ensure anything. In the book... Perpetual War for Perpetual Peace. The authors show how America has perpetuated various wars in order to convince the people that the only way for peace is to always be in some sort of armed conflict or a conflict of any sort. The war on poverty, the war on crime, the war on terror, the war on this, the war in Iraq, the war in Iran, the war here, the war there. Perpetual War for Perpetual Peace. This is an Orwellian model of 1984 where the Orwellian state perpetuated military scenarios in order to maintain control over the people. Now, if you've ever read Orwell's 1984, if you remember, the state was always in warfare in order to keep them always jacked, knowing that the state was going to fight for them. And so while their hope became rooted in the military strength of the nation, their hope and trust in God diminished where it eventually evaporated entirely. And so when a people fail to elect leaders that are God-fearing men, they elect leaders who seek to control the populace by any and every means at their disposal. Okay, so what was the problem? Why did people choose Saul? Why did they choose Saul? Why did the people in America choose who they choose? Why did they choose Saul to be a king modeled after the pagan nations? And remember, all the pagan nations... If you think about the pagan nations of that time, they were bloodthirsty nations of warfare, all of who relied entirely on their military strength. So why did Israel desire Saul's leadership over Samuel's leadership? And the answer was that, obviously, they were ignorant of what godly leadership was. And I believe that's the problem today. Too many are not able to identify what godly leadership is because they are a slave to their own slavish mentality. Remember, even though Israel was physically liberated from Egypt, Moses 
a godly leader, got them out. He contended with Pharaoh. He was a contentious man against the wicked. We need some more contention in the world against the wicked men of the nations. Moses leads the people of Israel out of Egypt. And once liberated, they still desired the bondage that Egypt had offered them. And they were even willing to get rid of Moses and return to the tyranny of Pharaoh if only they could have their leeks and the onions again. They were physically liberated, but psychologically, emotionally, spiritually, they're still in bondage. And they were willing to go into bondage in order to get the welfare dainties of evil men. Now consider the components of godly leadership. Jesus gives us this instruction. In Matthew 20, verse 25 and the following, we read this. And Jesus called them unto him and said, Ye know that the princes of the Gentiles exercise dominion over them, and they that are great exercise authority upon them. But it shall not be so among you, but whosoever will be great among you, let him be your minister, and whosoever will be chief among you, let him be your servant. Even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. Now he's talking to the apostles who he knew were going to take the charge of leadership after he departed. So he's telling them exactly, he's defining for them exactly what is leadership. The scriptures make clear and undeniably distinct that there is a separation between secular leadership and biblical leadership. The people of the nations, the Gentile nations, the wicked nations, they want to be tyrannical. But it will not be so with you. On the surface, secular leadership and biblical leadership might appear similar. But at the very heart of their motivation, at the very core of their goal, and in the way leadership success is measured, they are as far apart as the East is from the West. The reason why there are so many books and lectures and discussions about leadership is because at every social crisis, whenever there is a social crisis, you can be sure that there is a crisis of leadership. And we are in a social crisis, and the reason is there is a crisis of biblical leadership. And if that leadership paradigm, that model, is not theo- and Christocentric, in other words, if that model is not God-centered, Christ-centered, and liberty-minded under God, If it's not focused in that way, then the societal structure will suffer and may even unravel entirely. The more we bring ungodly leaders into the place of authority, the the more we are liable to lose everything that our forefathers worked for. So once that happens, once ungodly leaders are placed in the position of authority, Every social institution experiences instability, revolution, and chaos, and there is then a systemic unraveling of everything, every element of civilization. Cultural instability affects the psychological underpinnings of the masses, resulting in doubt, fear, hopelessness, anger, and if prolonged, even violence. Because people that continually is angry, they will finally, if they are not dealt with properly, they will finally break out into revolution. That's what we're faced with today. And we are facing this today not because there is a dearth of leadership, but because there is a dearth of biblical sound leadership, which is solely based upon the word of God for the liberation of God's people and the moral fiber of the nation. Now, during the Reformation, 
particularly during the last days of Calvin and into the tenure of Theodore Beza. Geneva faced a period of unrest, particularly due to the massacre at the St. Bartholomew's Festival of 1572, where somewhere between 10,000 and 100,000 French Calvinists were slaughtered within a month of violence instigated by French Roman Catholics. So within one month, 30 days, almost 100,000 individuals were slaughtered by the Roman Catholics. Leadership was at issue. Calvin had assumed that the church and the civil rulers would work together to maintain peace between the minority of French Calvinists in a predominantly Roman Catholic France. Calvin's initial response to this massacre, his response to the violence and the tyranny, was simply to pray, bear up with the persecution, obey these wicked political leaders up to the point where conscience will not allow Calvin said, we have to do penance. We just should hope. And eventually, eventually, a better leader will come along. That was his initial response. But once his brothers, the French Calvinists, were slaughtered in such a way, this crisis forced Calvin and Beza, with the help of Beza, to rethink that policy, Calvin's original political ideology, because he had to face such violence. Was he going to allow his brothers in Christ to be slain and just pray and do penance and just hope for a better day? And this is what led Beza to adopt the doctrine of the lesser magistrate as well as armed resistance whenever it was needed. What Geneva needed most at that time and for all time was biblical leadership. And this is what is lacking in the realm of men and nations, both civilly and ecclesiastically today. In the civil realm, in tandem with the church, the civil realm in tandem with the church has been plagued with what I call leadership rule ruts. These rules are not the rules of scripture, but the rules based upon secularism by the wisdom of men and not the wisdom of God. Most churches today structured their entire policy like businesses, not like scripture declares. We are not professionals. We are ministers. And there's a difference. And so whenever the church or the civil government, whether it's a town, a county, state, or a nation, seeks to solve a problem, most times they forget to factor in God. And they revert to secular wisdom and the rules of men, which usually takes the form of positive law, which is not very positive if you know what positive law means. And this places both the church and the state in a leadership rut, which if not repented of, got chastisements results. Sadly, this is what has defined both the modern church movement and the method of civil governance of our day. Okay, so, what's the difference between the secular leadership model of the world, and the biblical leadership model of Scripture. In other words, what are the distinguishing characteristics which separate secular leadership from biblical leadership? Well, again, we're back to Matthew chapter 20. Very clearly, whosoever will be great among you, in other words, whosoever will be rulers among you, let him be your minister. Rulers, in other words, must be ministers. And whosoever will be chief among you, let him be your servant. So we're seeking to have ministers and servants as those who are leading men and nations. Biblical leadership authority begins and ends with service toward others. This service, however, is of a certain kind. It's sacrificial. And it is sacrificial in behalf of others. 
because it is based upon a genuine love and care for others. Too many seeking places of authority are sacrificing their selves for themselves, not for others. And this sacrificial care for others is a self-denial, a self-resignation of self for the good and the prosperity of others. It's the giving of oneself. Author David Vaughn comments, notice what he says. He says, genuine leadership, in other words, biblical leadership, is not a matter of holding a powerful position or exercising coercive power over others. It is not a matter of issuing commands. It is not a matter of sitting in an impressive office, devising plans and strategies and programs. It is not a matter of talk, which is cheap. Rather, real leadership is the expression of a life of sacrifice in the service of others. It's concrete. He continues, All too many Christians have not comprehended this link between charity and authority. They have not understood that authority comes through service. A true leader, therefore, exercises influence because he is a man of virtuous character, competent ability, and sacrificial service. His moral authority is both earned and deserved. Secondly, through this service, this sacrificial service, Men and women, boys and girls, are positively influenced Godward. That's what service is all about. Whenever we seek a position of power, a position of authority, it is to encourage and positively influence others Godward. The goal of biblical leadership is to influence others to be more Christ-like to love justice and to seek righteousness so that there would be liberty and peace in the land under such biblical leadership. And this type of leadership is called transformational leadership. In other words, it transforms things. It transforms people and things. It transforms the is into the ought. It changes what is under men to what ought to be under God. It seeks to transform entire communities from what it is to what it ought to be as defined by Scripture. It's a power to be reckoned with. It requires, however, focus. It requires tenacity. It requires sacrifice. It's about planting seeds and then nourishing them. It takes patience. It takes a future-oriented individual. And it requires consistency. Stick-to-itiveness. I remember Gary North always used to say, you got to stick to your knitting. If that sweat is going to be finished, you got to stick to your knitting. But how many, how many people just want to start something and see it flourish right away? They don't stick with it. They go from this thing to that thing to the other thing and the other thing. And they wonder why they can't get anything accomplished. Why they can't get anything finished. But by sticking to something, by being consistent and having your true north that's God's word, that's how leaders influence others. But you see, now here's the rub. Before a biblical leader can influence others... He or she must be influenced by God, the Holy Spirit, the study of the Word of God. In order to lead, you must be led. In order to lead, you must know how to be led. And this is what David meant in his last words. If the power of regeneration is absent, human leadership will remain void of power and will ultimately degenerate into secular rule to the hurt of the masses. 
I don't have to tell you, you don't have to be a rocket science to know that the people in power today are not Christian people. They're not God-fearing people. They're devils incarnate. They're slanderous and backbiters and tailbearers and blasphemers. And they can only do one thing with that type of methodology. I won't even call it leadership. They can only do one thing, destroy things. They don't know how to build anything. They only know how to destroy. The church is there to build up. The wicked can only destroy. The biblical leader must first be led by the Lord if they are to lead others to the Lord and to his model for cultural prosperity. And this means that leaders are to be careful to understand and then rightly apply God's law word to every situation they face. Therefore, the biblical leader must first be a model of Christian behavior by being conformed to the ethical standards of the word of God before he or she can expect others to be influenced thereby. This means, and and that means that you, you just can't talk about leadership. You can't talk and pontificate. I'm so I just want to puke when I hear these these people just talk, talk, talk. I want to see men build things, build people, build up the congregations of Christ, build up those in the culture by building something, by being consistent, instead of sitting back with a cup of coffee telling everybody what else to do. You must be a model of Christian behavior and you must show forth that behavior before you can expect others to be influenced thereby. You cannot be self-promoting. You cannot be narcissistic. You cannot be proud, pharisaical, myopic, or too busy to pause to consider the needs of others. In this way, the biblical leader becomes an agent of change. Godward. Isn't that what we're trying to do? Change? I've always said... If your vision is not that you want to change the world, then your vision is just too small. It's a truncated vision. So leaders cannot be self-promoting. They cannot be narcissistic or proud, myopic or too busy to pause to consider the needs of the others. We have to be agents of change, Godward. Leaders must also be passionate about cultivating leadership qualities in others. I tell my children, and I tell you, always tell my children and I tell my grandchildren I don't want you to be like me I want you to be better than me I want you to be better than me ten times better than me to push forward the agenda that Christ has called us to in this way those leaders can become future oriented leadership must be future oriented looking generationally always looking for the next generation of leaders to continue where they leave off and this is why it is so discouraging when those who you would have hoped for That they would be the next generation when they depart from the faith. When they depart. When they're inconsistent. When they're self-promoting or myopic. Like who's next? Where do we find the, the, the group of men who are ready to take over when we finally depart? The Reverend John Frame explains. He says, The resurrection of the Lord Jesus means victory for God's kingdom earthly dominion for God's people and a future-oriented cultural outlook. Generational. For the biblical leader, generational succession and the continuity of faith and service from the next generations and the generations following that is of the utmost urgency and of the utmost importance. And when that leader observes an individual manifesting unchristian behavior, 
Biblical admonition must be forthcoming in order to restore the erring possible leader. And this is why it's so infuriating when civil leaders, those civil magistrates, set forth policies which negatively affect the future generations. And that's what's happening today. The future generations of our nation are being negatively influenced and affected. And that, for a Christian, it should be infuriating. These civil rulers are not acting as ministers, nor are they acting as agents of change for good, but for evil. And this is also true for ecclesiastical leadership. Whenever there is an overbearing minister or a session or a denomination who seeks to add to the law of God as the Pharisees did, violating the liberty of the congregation's conscience, he's not acting for good, but for evil. Biblical leadership, especially when the leaders must confront evil, requires courage, tenacity, skill, ability, experience to see problems before they develop into a crisis. But if they do develop into a crisis, then true biblical leadership can deal with it. They can navigate it as best they can. Notice how Solomon encourages us in this task. In Proverbs 27, 6, notice, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. In Proverbs 9, 9, Give instruction to a wise man, and he will yet be wiser. Teach a just man, and he will increase in learning. We have to develop leaders. The third point, God's resources are to be invested for the reorientation of the mind and the heart of human beings and those human institutions that God has providentially established on earth so that they conform to the will of God. So we are to invest in the kingdom with our money, with our skill, with our time, with our energy. If that's really important, as you invest into your children, Biblical leadership is a stewardship issue. Note the Lord's counsel of Luke twelve forty two and following. And the Lord said, Who then is that faithful and wise steward whom his Lord shall make ruler over his household to give them their portion of meat in due season? Blessed is that servant whom the Lord when he comes shall find so doing. Stewardship. Now, the Greek word for stewardship is oikonomos, which literally means house law or the law of the house. The implication is that those who are called as leadership stewards over God's house must remain faithful to the divine stipulations concerning their office. So the implication is that those who are called as leadership stewards over God's house, over God's kingdom, must remain faithful to the divine stipulations concerning their office. They must not only be stewarding things, but skills that are given for the cultivation of God's people and God's world. And we all have skills that we can give, devote to the kingdom's good, but we need to have the wherewithal to do that. We need to have the the gumption to do that. So not only are we to steward our things... You know, a lot of people today, they, I gave my tithe, that's enough. It's not enough. In fact, you could give all that's never enough compared to what Christ has given to us. So whenever a, a civil ruler allows for frivolous spending, which is outside of his stewardship purview, he is stealing, he is blaspheming. The raising of taxes for community basketball courts or a skateboard park, or even a walking trail. These are not within the realm of proper government expenditures. This is not proper stewardship. 
The government has no money. It's got someone else's money. It's the, oh, it's the other people's money. The OPM. Other people's money. And that's what they use. Because it's not their money. They never earned it. They, they can spend it freely. Because they're thieves. They're covetous. They're not biblical thinkers. Now this principle must also be applied to ecclesiastic rulers. They're not off the hook either. Tithe money should be used for the evangelistic or the diaconate reasons. It should be building institutions. Money should be used to establish a dominion model of concrete proportions and influence. Biblical training centers, seminaries should be established. Kingdom advancing should be at the forefront of all economic decisions. We have to take our money and use it. Build, build, build. That's what the government does. They build all these institutions which are ungodly, all these institutions which are wicked, they're building, and it's not even their money. It's our money. And they're using our money to destroy our faith. They're using our money to destroy our churches. They're using our money to destroy our families. They're using our money to destroy our future. Kent Wilson confirms in his book, Stewardship Leadership in the Nonprofit Organization, says this, God not only provides all resources for mankind's use, He also provides the ability to develop and multiply those resources. According to Deuteronomy 8.18, where Moses states, But thou shalt remember the Lord thy God, for it is He that giveth thee power to get wealth, so that He may establish His covenant which He sware unto thy fathers as it is this day. The failure of stewardship is forgetfulness, pride, failure to obey the divine giver and presumption, all symptoms which show that the steward has forgotten his or her role and assumed the role of an owner. The government doesn't own any money. They're stewards of money. We don't own our own money because it's God who gave us the power to get wealth. So we are stewards of even the money that we work to get. Therefore, the behavior of the steward ought to be praise and thanksgiving for being entrusted with resources and then to rightly use those resources that God has given him the power to get for the good of the people and for the building of the kingdom of God. A leader must have a constant awareness of who has given him the resources, the reason behind the gift, and the respect for the existence and the rights of the true owner coupled with a humility of spirit. Remember, the money you make is not your money. It belongs to God because He gave it to you. You are a steward. Remember, all those in leadership will give an account before God concerning their office of leadership. Whether you're a father, even mother, in the civil realm or the ecclesiastical realm, you will give an account. The fourth point, biblical leaders must have goals that can be measured. Jesus often spoke of the fruit of bearing plants that eventually bear edible fruit. What good is a tree that has no use? You know, the Puritans used a, a model to compare the genuine saint to the counterfeit saint. And many Christians are like, they said, trees that bear beautiful flowers. They look beautiful outside. Oh, they could speak with a silver tongue about theology. They could parse words. They look really good. They look holy and pious, God-loving and moral, yet all they have is an outward show of beauty. The Puritan said that that's one kind of Christian. 
But then there are the other kinds, those that really bear some fruit, some 30, some 60, some 100. All have a measurable end, but the one that only bears flowers is just beautiful on the outside. No nourishment there. Jesus said, those who are of me will bear fruit. So what is the leadership goal for the development of a God-honoring culture? Well, you start at home. It's where you always start. Start with yourself, your family. Start in the church with the overall care, widows and infirm, the fearful, the confused, the young people, the elderly. We minister to them, even the elderly. They have a purpose, the bereaved. We are to minister to them. We are to think outside of ourselves. Instead of, Lord, give me this, Lord, give me that. I want this and I want that. Many of society's problems can be remedied if the church would just rekindle its proper leadership role in the community. Both in building a godly community and by rebuking civil leaders when they fail in their mission Godward. So in order to construct a methodology of leadership, you must start with the end in mind. You must think God's thoughts after him and build from there. Begin with the goal and then figure out how to accomplish it biblically. What do you want the end to look like? What do you want your children to to achieve? What do you want your church to achieve? What do you want the community to achieve? What do you want your nation to look like? You have to start with the end and then you work backward. In that way, the effect of leadership can be measured. Now finally... The question that needs to be asked in order to maintain a biblical focus is not so much what needs to be done in this situation or that situation, or even how a leader is to accomplish certain goals. But the question that men should ask themselves, those who are contemplating leadership position, for those that seek a leadership role, they must ask themselves why. The what and the how will follow naturally. It is the why that's important Why do I want to be a leader? Why do I want to lead others? The Apostle explains in 1 Corinthians 10.31, Whether therefore ye eat or drink, or whatsoever ye do, underline that phrase, do all to the glory of God. What questions should be asked of anyone that wishes the responsibility of leadership? How do you vet a leader? How do you vet someone that wants to go into a public office or a pastor or whatever? How do you vet them? You ask them, what is your motivation? Why do you want to lead others? Or you ask yourself, why do I want to lead others? Is it for fame, notoriety, power, money? Why do I want to be a leader? Why do you want to be a leader? Then you ask the next question. Do you know how to be led? If you cannot be led, you surely cannot lead. And a man that is under authority understands authority. That's very important. To be under another's leadership is a humbling experience. Humility is essential in the role of leadership. And then you must ask yourself, or those who you're asking, do you have leadership skills? Have you shown in the past leadership capabilities? What is the evidence? You just wake up one morning and say, you know what? I want to be the king. How do you know? What's your motive? Do you have the skill? Have you had a track record? What is your track record? And finally, you ask them this. Do you delight in serving others? And how have you in the past served others? Or does your leadership position only offer others serving you? 
is my desire or your desire or whoever you're vetting, is their desire for leadership truly for God? Oh, and so many, and this is what makes me infuriated too, so many say, yeah, yeah, I, I want to serve God. And then, and then they get into office and, and what happened to that? So you ask them, what is your desire to lead? Is it for God? Is it for the advancement of His kingdom? Or is your agenda something else? Perhaps a darker, more self-centered reason behind desiring a leadership position. We see this all day long. The only reason why anyone should desire to be in a position of leadership is for God's glory and the well-being of God's people so that in the end, when we shall have done all those things which are commanded us, we must say we are unprofitable servants. We have done that which was only our duty to do. And I don't know of anyone other than being called of God that wants to really be a leader if it's going to be a biblical leadership. By understanding that, receiving it as true, and embracing it as fact that we are in and of ourselves unprofitable, and by leading others, we are only doing our duty. Let me close with what the Apostle tells us. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7 and 8, he says this, I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not only to me, but unto all them also that love his appearing. I'm afraid that too many leaders in leadership positions today in both the civil realm and the ecclesiastical realm are in for a wrathful awakening when they finally meet the Lord at that day because they do not believe that their position is for the service of others, but for the service of themselves. May that never be said of us as we continue to plot forward for the next few generations, building a biblical leadership mentality that we might build the kingdom of God on earth in time and in history. And this we shall do, God helping us unto the praise of the glory of His grace. Amen.